I realized I'd walked through a market full of Bukutingi natives having the time of their lives eating at the market. And it's like, I crowdsourced when I should have looked for a crowd. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today's episode is a remix of last week's launch event for the release of my new book, The Vagabond's Way, which is hosted by Book Passage in California, and put me into conversation with my old friend, Ernest White II, who's appeared on this podcast before. Together, Ernest and I talk about how I got the idea for the new book, how I put it together, and how I found the various quotes and literary allusions that went into it. But as much as anything, this conversation is a testament to what happens when two people who love travel talk about travel, and how one story about travel can feed into the next one once the conversation gets going. Ernest and I talk about how travel is always in conversation with the lives we lead at home, and how allowing yourself to make mistakes on the road helps you grow as a traveler. We talk about how experiencing faraway communities can teach you how to live in your own, and how to practice gratitude in both places. We talk about how looking for crowds in a new place can be a better strategy for finding cool experiences than digital crowdsourcing, and how no amount of planning can compare to what you find by surprise on the road. We talk about how making time is as important as making money when it comes to making a dream trip possible. We start by talking about the premise of The Vagabond's Way, and I read a short section from the introduction chapter. If you're already familiar with the book's introduction and premise, feel free to skip forward about 10 minutes when we really start to dig into the nuances of what travel offers. Either way, let's listen in. One of the things that uh, I think resonates with me with regard to just everything you do as a storyteller and, the, and, the, and you know, everything you embody is just the idea of the vagabond. And you describe it as uh, a, a vagabond as being traditionally defined as a person who wanders from place to place without a fixed home. And yet we had the opportunity to spend time with you in your fixed home, Kansas, uh, which you know, sometimes you weren't thinking of it as your fixed home necessarily. Uh, your folks were there, you're, you were you were raised there, but you were out in the world for a while before coming back. How have you squared the idea of having this fixed home and still embodying the spirit of Vagabonde? Yeah, well, I think I, I sort of traveled my way into my conception of home. Mm -hmm. uh, that in, in a certain sense, I... I had to go to the other side of the world to feel what home could be. Um, and as you know, um, I went in on some property with my parents years ago. This is a lesson I, I didn't learn in Kansas. It's, it's a lesson I learned to the other side of the world, in Egypt, in, in, in Vietnam, in, in Namibia, places where families pool resources. And so one great thing I've learned from travel is family. And in a sense, seeing how other people lived in their homes helped me deepen uh, my own sense for home. And of course, when you came and we did the Fly Brother episode here, it was about meeting my wife in Kansas. You know, my, my wife who was, who's lived in Europe and is very well traveled herself and myself who's been around the world and lived in Asia for a long time. I met her right on the other side of this door. And so it's, it's interesting, you know, you define vagabond uh, as someone who wanders with no fixed address. But I think one thing I try to promote in the book is the idea that you don't have to end the attitude of travel when you get home. Mm -hmm. You can take these, these soul-enriching lessons of travel, including, including lessons about community, take them home and fold them into your home. And so like a vagabond doesn't have to be the guy who is wandering the earth alone until he's age 80, right? A vagabond can be a person who takes the experience of travel into a dynamic experience of home. And 
you know, my book goes month by month through the progression of travel. December is really about coming home and finding ways to, to not ever end the journey, to, to fold those lessons and those inspirations of travel into the home life you have. Would you be able to offer us a little taste of what the bag of the Vagabond's Way provides to its readers? I'll read a little bit of my introduction chapter just so that people who aren't familiar with the premise of the book can learn a little bit more about it. Perfect. I, um, and so here it is. At its best, travel is not a flashy backdrop for our lifestyle ambitions, but an act that touches every aspect of our being. Travel is not a swaggering declaration of self undertaken to impress other people. It is a quiet inquiry, requiring awareness, resilience, and openness to change. Travel is not a hard science that can be cracked open with some algorithmic formula. It is a nuanced art expressed through joyous, ragged-edged, mindful practice. Travel is not some consumer product you buy into. It is something that you gift to yourself. Over the course of 366 one-page meditations, one for each day of a leap year, the Vagabond's Way mimics the progression of a journey, travel inspiration and planning, getting started on the road, expanding one's comfort zone, learning from the quiet complexities of the journey, and circling back home. As with the journey, these meditations are best approached slowly, one day at a time, reflecting on each day's nuances before moving on to the next. Though this book can technically be read from cover to cover in a few days, it is designed to be taken in incremental doses, in the same manner that one might visit a gym or a dance studio, steadily benefiting from the daily ritual over the course of a year. The Vagabond's Way is about the mindset that can enlarge each day on the road, however long that journey might be. Though some of the historical and literary allusions in these pages refer to travels that span multiple continents over the course of many years, its insights apply as readily to short-term, close-to-home journeys. And while the word vagabond is traditionally defined as, quote, a person who wanders from place to place without a fixed home, as you said, Ernest, this book affirms that travel is as much a way of being as it is an act of movement. Some travel themes reappear in these pages in slightly different form numerous times over the course of a year. Often, these themes reinforce the kinds of issues the travel industry would have us ignore, issues like traveling light, going slow, letting go of rigid plans, staying open to surprise, embracing boredom, celebrating disorientation, shutting off our technology, spending less money, wandering away from tourist zones, looking beyond cultural stereotypes, and developing travel habits that benefit local economies. These thematic repetitions are deliberate and serve as a kind of gentle refrain that encourages the reader to consider and reconsider these travel virtues. At its best, this book will not just explore ideas about mindful travel, it will make you want to travel, and in doing so, to enrich your life in ways you don't yet understand. If midway through reading this book, you fling it aside because it doesn't quite fit into the luggage for a journey you have concluded that you can no longer postpone, it has done its job. I just feel like you capture the essence of what adventure, what uh, you know, what life is about uh, as it relates to travel and in just being out in the world. You've always done that. You've always been inspirational in that way. And I just am excited to see this latest iteration, which is a daily meditation, a daily invitation to going deeper within yourself as you go out into the world, as you engage with other people, be they your neighbors or a stranger on a train or on a plane. Uh, and so thank you so much, Rolf, for, for putting all of this together. What inspired you? The world of travel, as it inspires your own career, Ernest, 
But um, actually, this is this sort of came out of the pandemic. Um, that uh, as you know, I met my wife on 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 the deck. We had our first date on on this porch during the pandemic. We had to stand ten feet apart because it was we it was early pandemic. And we didn't know how it worked, um, and we pretty much immediately knew we were right for each other. And so every morning uh, after we decided it was time to be together, we would read to each other um, on the porch to start the day to connect with each other, but also to connect with the importance of what each day had in store for us. Yeah. And so we would read like Mary Oliver poems or Ross Gay's Book of Delights, Thich Nhat Hanh's Meditations, um, also a book called uh, The Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday, which sort of created the template for this, which The Daily Stoic has a quote by a Stoic every day and then a meditation or a reflection on that. And I thought the travel world needs this because, you know, I have been I'm sort of an obsessive and a little bit of a nerd. You, you can see this, Ernest, about travel. And I've been collecting quotes and, and thoughts about every book I've read about travel, every travel experience I've had for 25 or more years. And I realized I had this wealth of wisdom that's not just my own, but it's like 3,000 years of traveler's wisdom that I can aggregate into one book to sort of help people focus on that more experiential, that more deep dive side of travel that really affects you in a way that goes beyond the bullet pointed list that we see in advertisements about yes. travel. And so that flowed out um, and it, it just flowed right out of me. And I'm really, really happy to have it out in the world. Well, listen, it is incredibly expansive and deep. That is the thing that kept coming up for me every time I would read uh, a, a page. Uh, you know, it was it's just like, wow, like you cover so much uh, with regard to travel as a human endeavor, endeavor uh, and co a connection as a human endeavor and love as a human endeavor and all of these different things. And, and you're able to have it be universal and specific at the same time. And that's, uh, again, that's a marvel to me. How did you end up deciding which quotes to use? And then how did you go about researching or even devising or divining how you wanted to go deeper based on whatever quote you used? Well, that was the question. And, you know, in, in keeping all these quotes, I, I kept what is what is known as a commonplace book. And this is something that goes back to the aristocrats of, of the Renaissance, you know, where if you were if you were da Vinci, you know, da Vinci kept a commonplace book. Thomas Jefferson kept, kept a commonplace book. You didn't have as much access to, to books, let alone the Internet back then. So if you read something interesting, you would copy it down into your commonplace book. Well, I had a Mac Classic computer in the 1990s where I first started copying down these quotes because I was afraid I would forget them. And sure. so for 25 years, I've been saving my quotes in, and in different categories. You know, it, it's just like, wow, borders are a really interesting place. When you cross a border from one nation to another, something special happens. When you haggle in a market, when you used to fix prices and you're haggling for prices, that's an experience too. So over the years, I subcategorized all these things and I realized that I really covered a breadth of human experience that travel inspires in us. And, and some of them are, are ethical issues, like how soon should you start taking photos when you walk into a village? Mm. Um, and other things are experiential, like even the inspiration to travel. I think a lot of what I talk about is permission. Sometimes we have the wherewithal to travel, but we haven't given ourselves permission to do it. I also talk a lot about attention because travel forces us into a new kind of attention. Um, and at its best, we bring that attention back home when we see our home in a brand new way. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I just, I poured out 3,000 uh, uh, years of travel readings over the course of 25 years and my own experiences. And that's the Vagabond's way. Okay, man. So I have to admit that uh, the idea of you keeping all of these on a Mac 
is less romantic than my <laughs> keeping them all in a shoebox, but uh, on little scraps of paper. But hey, you know, as long as we get the goods, and in this case, the goods are in this one tome, uh, I guess we're all <laughs> coming out ahead. What are some of your favorite quotes? Well, anyone who's read my book, Vagabonding, knows that I'm a big fan of Walt Whitman. Mm-hmm. Um, Walt Whitman, who I think published his first edition of Leaves of Grass in the 1850s, but it feels like he's sitting across from you and, and looking you in the eye and talking to you as a kindred spirit. And in fact, when I asked my wife to marry me, I basically plagiarized Walt Whitman. I said, Kiki, give me your hand. I give you my love more precious than money. Will you come travel with me? Shall we stick together as long as we live? Um, and then, so it almost, it, I think the song of the open road if if my tombstone is big enough, I just want the whole thing put on there. Walt Whitman's great travel poem, Song of the Open Road. From this moment forth, we ask not good fortune, for we are good fortune. Oh my gosh. That's all about permission. It's just like, we're not asking for good luck. We're going to manifest good luck. We're not asking for a life-changing journey. We're going to live one. And we don't even know what it looks like yet, but we have faith that it's going to touch our lives in ways we can't even understand yet. Wow. Goosebumps. I mean, honestly, like it's, it's really just being the party yourself. You, you know, you don't have to show up to the party, just be the party, uh, just be the adventure, just be the, the, the romance and just be all of these things that, uh, you, you, you may think is out, are outside of you, but no, they're already in you. Giving yourself permission, sorry to interrupt, but also to make mistakes, you know, because I think we dream of travel as this perfectly sealed, um, you know, pie in the sky dream. And then after one week of feeling out of place and not quite, not knowing the language at all and and maybe paying too much for, for dinner, then we feel bad. But actually that's part of the learning process that travel puts us, it makes us a kid again. It makes us a child again. Like we don't really know the vocabulary of the place we are. We're not really sure how to cross the street. We're not really sure how to do this. And so we're in this really open-hearted state. And part of what... Um, Uh, being good fortune is, is knowing that it's imperfect. Like all things in life, your travel experience is imperfect, but you are, to use a phrase I've used around you before, uh, Ernest, riding tall in the saddle and you are taking life head on. Absolutely, man. Taking ownership. Uh, And again, giving yourself permission to be out in the world and to fall, to trip, Mm. to uh, slip, Uh, That reminds me of an experience I had. I was in Cuba trying to pretend like I was not American, trying not to be, you know, seen, if you will. And I accidentally slipped on some poop that was on the ground. And the uh, four letter word that escaped my lips um, was not in Cuban Spanish. And so, (laughs) you know, and I just had to be all right with having my cover blown so dramatically and uh, and flamboyantly at, at once. (laughs) how is your cuban spanish your portuguese your brazilian portuguese is fantastic Uh, thank you thank you i I, i've never had any complaints about my cuban spanish (laughs) that's what i can say but they may not have they they may have just like "Mm, he's trying so (laughs) i appreciate that as well well one thing i will say is that i envy your language proficiency Uh, and i spent a beautiful month in cuba and my Spanish was horrible. So I didn't slip and poop. I'll, I'll give you that, Ernest. But um, <laughs> just, just to encourage people who are, who are sort of, who haven't given themselves permission to travel yet yes. or who are surrounded by people who are sort of naysayers, 
will actually, you can get by, you know, learn a few simple phrases. And actually, yeah. uh, classroom Spanish doesn't do you a lot of good in, in, in Cuba because it's so, it's so Caribbean. The Spanish sure. there is so Caribbean. Yes. So that's another part of the per- permission. And, and I'm a walking uh, testament to this. I mean, you're great with languages, Ernest, but I'm horrible at languages, yet I've traveled a lot. And I, I'm riding tall in the saddle, and I've learned to say, hello, sorry, uh, how much is this in many different world languages? Um, and it's, it's been a blessing, you know, I've, I've been a fool many times, uh, but language is, uh, is not my gift as it is with yours, Ernest, but I haven't used it as an excuse. And it's been a blessing to, uh, to, uh, go to places like Cuba and, and try. Absolutely, Rolf. And fool is nothing. I would never use that word, uh, when describing you other than you fool you when you <laughs> mentioned you were about to get married. And I was only saying that from uh, from the bottom of my heart. But listen, man, I have been places where the only thing I could say was, please, thank you. And where's the bathroom? Mm. And uh, I think people just were happy that I was even trying to say those basics uh, in the local language. My accents are really good. My grammar is always Tarzan-like. So don't uh, let the rolled, R, uh, rolled R's fool you. <laughs> I get my R's and L's twisted there. Um, so in thinking about the arrangement of the, bag of, uh, the Vagabond's Way, the Vagabond's Way, uh, thinking about the, the way the book is structured and organized, uh, you know, you've got several themes going on, one of which is why and how to travel. What are some of your most salient, uh, not only quotes, but uh, points and stories that you tell uh, in that category? Well, I, I touched really early on on the idea of time wealth on the idea mm-hmm. of that of all the things we can surround ourselves of all the objects we can surround ourselves in 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 life we don't really own them as much as we own our time we're all born equally rich in time mm-hmm. and we sort of have to walk through the world in such a way that we can give ourselves the time to live our dreams mm-hmm. and i'm not saying that everybody is going to be a traveler or dreams of travel but a lot of people do and i talk to a lot of them and so sometimes the key to actualizing that time wealth isn't throwing money at it, but again, giving yourself permission, figuring out ways that you can travel in local economies that basically instead of paying the expensive $200 commercial hotel, you're paying 15 bucks a night for the same hotel that people in Mozambique sleep in and you're feeding into the local economy. And so from the very beginning, I quote philosophers and social scientists and all sorts of people to basically encourage the idea, this is your one life. Um, think about it. If you dream of travel, it's not as hard as you might think. And I, I bring up the idea of me- memento mori, which sounds more of the idea of remember death, because mm-hmm. our de- our days are limited. You know, we can't put off our truest lives forever. Um, and maybe Ernest, you've been in a similar situation for me. I, I know in your early travels were funded by throwing luggage on airplanes, right? Um, I- Yes, that was true. I had a part-time gig in an airport that allowed me the uh, not only the time, but the, the the flight benefits to get around the world very inexpensively. And so you're right. I mean, there's really no excuse uh, as long as you make it a priority, you can do it. Yeah, you find ways. I, I stocked shelves in grocery stores when I was young. I I mowed lawns in the greater Seattle area. And there's people in Florida where you came up or in Kansas at the Pacific Northwest where I spent time when I was young who had a lot more resources. Yes. It's sort of it's sort of realizing that you use what money you have 
to, to take that time and feed it into the life that you want to live. And so really the first section, it covers a lot of different things about inspiration of travel. But I think a, a core philosophy of that first month in the vagabonding way is about time wealth uh, and just realizing that if time is your wealth, then you just use what money you have to make that dream trip be as uh, extravagant or simple as you can make it. Absolutely. And I think that's something that people don't really think about, which is you can always get more money. You may not know how, but you can't get more time. Mm. So that's, you know, when you look at which resource is more precious uh, and, and someone had to say that to me at the right time when I was able to receive it. But we're saying it now for all you amazing folks at home that you can always get more money. You can't get more time. And now is the time to, to do it. So I think we, this is a good segue into the idea of status versus experience. And we know that people often, and especially now with social media being what it is, uh, Instagram, which did not exist when you and I first started traveling, there's the idea of status was always there, but it's easier to, to, to kind of lord it over people uh, than before versus experience. How, can you, how do you speak to that in the book? Well, I, I talk about this in the history, uh, in the context of the history of travel, because for years, your average folk in the village couldn't travel. It was an aristocratic act. Mm -hmm. And so aristocrats traveled and they talked very loudly about their travels when they got home because it was conspicuous consumption. And of course, some, there's been some great travel writing that came out of the aristocratic class around the world from England to Japan and points beyond. But it feels like, you know, especially when travel sort of pivoted and became a mass phenomenon in the 19th century, um, when middle class people could travel, their way of pretending to be rich was to travel and talk about it. And it, 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 it comes to this day, I think travel and status will always be interwoven in a way that's, that's complicated. And it happens on Instagram too. And I'm guilty, Ernest, I know that uh, I look better in my Instagram photos than I do in, in an average day. I'm sure you do too, right? But that those are the travels that we're performing. And it's fine. I think people will always perform their travels. But the way travel can really touch you is those quiet moments when you're mm -hmm. not in front of your smartphone, when mm -hmm. you're not thinking about the souvenir that you're going to hang on your wall to impress your friends. But it's going to be those moments where you just think, I am humbled. You know, I met someone who makes a fraction of the money I met, and he taught me a lesson about family or love or work. And I am going to to weave this into my being. Uh, and it's those moments. It's those moments that affect you in no way. No Instagram post or fancy souvenir uh, could affect you. I, I, I talk about, actually in a different book, Souvenir, I talk about meeting souvenir vendors in Namibia. And I know you spent time in Namibia. Yes. And I was sort of asking them about the souvenirs they were selling. Sort of the subtext was like, how do you how do you settle for just selling souvenirs? And the souvenir vendor is like, no, no, this is love. This mm -hmm. is love for my family. My kid, my kids and my wife are living better lives up in the mountains. They were Damara, they're from the Damara people. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. like, I do this of love. This is for me is not work because this is inseparable from the love it is. And it's like, if only your average American could talk to this souvenir vendor who's making pennies to what we make. And the idea that he manifests his work as love, that's something you can't put on Instagram. That's something that you can't, that doesn't raise your status. It just humbles you. And I think those are the best travel moments. My goodness, man. I mean, and that's the thing. Like, I think both of us talked about how 
blessed we feel to continue to have these kinds of experiences, to have had innumerable experiences where we've engaged with people who materially have much less than we ever could or and, or, and, and that they'll ever have. Um, but at the same time, just have such a phenomenal understanding of humanity, of love, of connection, of fellowship and community. And they've let us in. You know, mm. they've engaged mm. with us in a way that allows us to take that energy back with us and do the same thing, do what they've been doing. And so when I think of status versus experience, you know, that's what I think about is the experience. Um, yes, I travel and tell as well. Uh, I mean, yeah, there you get the dopamine rush. But at the same time, really, like you said, it's sometimes it's these sunsets, it's the conversations, it's, you know, uh, the, the love affairs, it's, what, you know, the great meals in, in someone's mom's kitchen, you know, like it's all of those things that really um, make it worthwhile to me. Um, that, that make even, you know, struggling through um, airport security and testing for whatever is the next thing and, and all of the, 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 the hurdles that get thrown up. Um, for those of us who are blessed to travel with strong passports and strong mm. companies and, you know, physical uh, ability and, and, and all of those other things that privileges that we often take for granted, you know, but uh, it, it's it going beyond that. It's really seeking that connection. So, again, thank you for um, describing it and, and, and providing the opportunity for us to continue to engage with that on a daily basis. Yeah, it, it makes travel makes you feel privileges you never felt when you're at home. You know, suddenly you're in another place, and it's like actually, uh, we, our, our plumbing just went out in the house here in Kansas. Not having indoor plumbing for a week made us made us really feel that water in a new way. I think you come home and you you you, you get a perspective on how accidentally wasteful your life has been, mm-hmm. um, and actually you become a host. I mean, one of my great travel pleasures is hosting you in Kansas, Ernest. You know, you really learn how to be a, a host. You 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 learn. You learn the just the wonderful miracle that hosting somebody is when you are hosted on the other side of the world. And as a Florida guy, I think you'll appreciate this. I write about it in the Vagabond's Way. The first time I went to Key West, Florida, I was standing down by Duval, you know, in the tourist area of, of, of Key Austin. West. Sun went down and everybody started clapping. And it just blew me away. I was 23 years old. And, I, and it's like they clap for the sunset here. And I sort of internalized that little Florida experience. And I mean, we often stop to look at the sunset. We take pictures of it. Maybe we put them on Instagram, but just that gratitude, just feeling that gratitude. And if not physically, then mentally clapping for these moments of beauty that we are privileged to witness. It's a travel, it's a, it's a travel one virtue. And it's, it's something I try to bring home with me. Oh man. And I am so glad that you mentioned the G word because I was thinking as you were talking about your plumbing experience, I had the smile on my face because I was thinking about how grateful I would be when that water returned. It probably ovation worthy. <laughs> oh my God. It's just, you forget, you forget how much of your your life revolves around being able to pour a glass of water from the tap, mm-hmm. you know, being able to use the, t- the toilet in a normal way. Yes. And we've all been in travel situations where that is much more complicated. Um, and maybe uh, having traveled, you know, spending time in the Himalayas with no plumbing for a week made the time in Kansas with no plumbing for a week seem, seem pretty easy. So yeah, again, you really feel see these privileges that we enjoy here. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely, man. And so in thinking about that, uh, you know, in thinking about, 
other themes that you uh, kind of have outlined in the in the book. What travel teaches you is something that kind of stood out. And you talk about our over-dependency on mediocre now brain. What is mediocre now brain? And, you know, what are, what, what does travel teach us in addition to the perspective that you just spoke about? Well, I actually, I actually learned that phrase from a woman who was interviewing me for her podcast. And she was paraphrasing something I'd said in Vagabonding. And she came up with that phrase and I immediately said, I, I love that. I'm going to use it in my next book. Sure. Now brain. Basically, it's like we all dream about travel from home. We all look at the world through our computer screens, through our books, through our, the TV shows like Fly Brother with Ernest Wright II, right? But then while we are dreaming about travel, we're still in our mediocre now brain. We are not yet in that place where travel is teaching us by those mistakes we make and by going to that place on our bucket list and realizing there's a giant line outside the Louvre and just sort of following that smell to the patisserie that's around the corner and spending the afternoon there instead. So your mediocre now brain that is inspired and anticipating the travels is not as smart as the travel you will be one day, one week, one month, one year into your journey, however long it is. And if you trust that that future smart brain is going to be superior to your mediocre now brain, then that's something to really look forward to as a traveler, that every step you take on the road, each day you have, even the bad experiences are going to make you a better traveler and a more experienced person on the road. Uh, are there any, again, uh, passages or stories that come up for you with regard to just the listening and the ob observing aspects of travel? Well, you'll appreciate this, Ernest, because you're the son of teachers as, as I am. Uh, and teachers have superpowers in a way because their job, their job is to instill curiosity in young people. And mm. the first time I, I uh, hosted my parents in a really immersive travel experience was in Beijing. And the, the parental role was reversed. Like I was the expert. I was the travel guy. I had learned this, those simple phrases to get us around. Um, and so in a way that they were novices, but curiosity was a superpower. As, as teachers and, and just as good folks, they were able, it made me realize that you don't have to be an expert. Like as travelers, we're all outsiders in a foreign place. And sometimes mm -hmm. we pretend to be better travelers than others, oh, we're travelers and they're tourists. My parents, they knew that they weren't from Beijing, but they would ask questions. And of course, Chinese people have a lot of respect for older folks. You know, they had gray hair at the time. Yes. And in a way, the Chinese people were more interested in my parents because it's not every day that their neighborhood had a couple of people, this was a long time ago, they were in their 60s, um, walking through their street. And so it was so cool to get a travel lesson from my parents who were using their passport for maybe the second time. I had all these stamps on my passport. Traveling with my parents who had weaponized curiosity, but basically they didn't know a lot, but they asked a lot and they, they were engaged in everything. And that taught me a humbling lesson. At a time when I had some pretty impressive bylines as a travel writer, I took my parents out on a road and uh, sort of using that curiosity that they had tried to instill in their students, and I know your parents did the same thing, Ernest, they really showed that that's such a great tool to have as a travel, traveler. And people respect that. People respect asking just a simple, dumb question in their neighborhood because most people aren't asked, you know, aren't presented with curiosity about their corner of the universe. And I think absolutely. I mean, it's that curiosity that helps people to feel seen and empowered and loved. You know, you're asking them about themselves. You're expressing interest. Uh, and certainly it's about doing so humbly, you know, without um, communicating that, you know, about what they're, you know, the answer before they begin to answer the question. And I think that's a challenge sometimes for people. They may ask the question, but it's implied 
uh, in the way they show up that they already know better than you. Whereas, you know, mm. it, it's really about recognizing that you don't know, that we don't know when we show up in these places. We may, th- we may read up about it. We may have had experiences uh, in certain you know, elements of a, a, a fraction of what the possibilities could be, but we never know. And so it's always nice to just come from that place of, of humble um, curiosity. I'm not going to say oh, ignorance, but uh, yeah, humble curiosity. So I quote, uh, I think a, a, a Zen monk from 800 years ago, he says, not knowing is mo- most intimate. That basically, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get this story perfect, but uh, one monk visits another monk in a monastery in China and he's asked some big philosophical question. He says, I don't know. And, and the master says, very good, not knowing his most intimate. That basically admitting what we don't know and and improving ourselves by engaging in that not knowing sure. is something that will improve us as in our home lives. But in travel, unless we're coming to terms with that not knowing and pushing past it and deepening our, our knowledge of a place, then we're cheating ourselves out of experience. Mm, yes, absolutely. One last question from me before we open it up to the floor. We have several questions that have come in and we will be getting to those momentarily. But briefly, in talking about that uh, knowing and knowledge and having access to information now more than ever before in uh, the history of humanity, at least this go round, uh, you know, <laughs> we, we, we have all this access and information at our fingertips. Not sure that everybody always um, utilizes that access. But, you know, when we were coming along, we had books, we had guidebooks, we had, you know, uh, encyclopedias, we had like actual things in hand to access. But now we've got all this technology We've got all of these different virtual experiences that are coming closer and closer to being reality. We've got augmented reality. We've got technology that uh, keeps us engaged with it sometimes more than with, with the environment that we're experiencing at that moment. How do we balance this technology as we go forward? Well, Ernest, there's no silver bullet. I admit that. I admit in in the book, I try yeah. to gently discourage people from overdependence on technology because we we often navigate our lives through our phones these days. Some people could be watching this on their phone right now, um, and that phone in the pocket. You know, you and I came up in the in the paper guidebook era. Well, now you have your phone isn't just your guidebook, but it tells you the temperature and mm-hmm. it has a map to show you where to go. It has all these tools. It has. Maybe it can help you translate Portuguese or Spanish if you don't speak it as well as Ernest White II. And and so the problem is, is that if you're navigating too much of your travels through your phone, that's a home-driven habit. We see so much of the world through our phones at home. Why would we go to the other side of the world and then be looking at our phone all the time. It's tough because I use my phone a bit, quite a bit too. Um, but there was this idea when virtual, with, when virtual realities first came around, it's like, well, you can experience the world without leaving your home. Well, now it's like you could not leave your home while experiencing the world. You know, you can basically be sending the same silly texts to your same silly friends, looking at your same social media friends, um, trying to find, uh, you know, to, to crowdsource you're using your phone to crowdsource a restaurant instead of just looking for a crowd. I wrote a, there's a chapter in the book about this. I was in Bukatini, uh, Indonesia, on the island of Sumatra, and I wanted to have rendang, which is this great, you know, local Meninkabau dish. And I, I went to TripAdvisor, I think, and I found a restaurant. And I went there 
and it had great reviews, but they were all tourist bus reviews and the tourist bus wasn't there yet. And so the Rendang was okay, but not great. I realized I'd walked through a market full of Bukutingi natives having the time of their lives eating at the market. And it's like, I crowdsourced when I should have looked for a crowd. There was a literal human crowd in the street eating food and I crowdsourced it through my phone. So if in doubt, fall back on those old human things. Be willing to be lonely and lost and a little bit bored and to follow your smell to the good restaurant, to follow a crowd to a good restaurant instead of following an app recommendation. Mm-hmm. And again, it's it's easier said than done. And I think some you know Gen Z people will think, oh my gosh, that sounds really weird. Um, and I don't mean to knock using your phone, but it's just like if you can discipline yourself to walk that fine edge between how your phone and technology can help you versus how it can hinder you. Um, maybe spend a day where you just keep your phone in your room. You use a paper map to walk around a new place. Yeah. Um, and and just push your comfort zone in ways that sort of push technology to, to the side in a way that can enhance your travels. Wow, what an interesting challenge. And that's something that I think uh, that might show up sooner than later within our community, Fly Brother and Friends, and uh, possibly some future episodes of Fly Brother. Just the idea of, uh, you know, leaving your phone and going out in the world with a map, asking questions, committing to, you know, asking people where is a great place to have lunch, you know, and, and, and doing that and, and following their recommendation and letting it be okay if you don't even like it. But getting into the habit again of using your other senses and not having to, and including your sense or your, the ability to communicate and talk and say, hi, uh, you know, I'm new here uh, and wondering if you can give me a, a suggestion or a recommendation. Thank this, you. Could, this could be a good challenge for the Fly Brother and Friends community. For, yes. for people who join Fly Brother and Friends, I think we should have a special challenge where instead of spending... And uh, 30 minutes looking at all the restaurant options, spend 15 minutes learning the local phrase for where's a good place to eat. Mm. (laughs) Then then go ask someone who looks like they live there and is well-fed, you know? I I like this idea. I love it, man. We will definitely expand upon that. So I'm excited about that possibility. Uh, I don't know if people... when I I, I am on my phone, by the way, (laughs) to (laughs) to have this conversation uh, just because of some tech issues here. But I uh, do have access to the wonderful questions that we have uh, come through, that have come through from some of our audience members. And uh, I am going to ask you right now, Tu Yang asks, Rolf, do you have any advice for someone leaving their country for the first time soon? And this person is in North America uh, and they're wondering about any advice you might have um, for them if they're leaving their country for the first time. Well, most, most advices have fun. It's going to blow your mind and, and make you nervous and, and give you a little bit of anxiety. I actually write a chapter about culture shock and how culture shock is a good thing. First time I tr- properly left the country, I went to Korea. Um, and man, I felt this anxiety. I didn't know what it was at the time, but I just, I felt a little anxiety. I wasn't used to the manner system, the rules, what was normal. Mm. I wasn't used to being out of place, you know? Um, I'm I'm a, a white American dude. I, I've been walking down streets my whole life, being in a crowd of people who look kind of like me. And suddenly I was in Korea and I wasn't that way. I felt anxious, not just for that, for other reasons. I, I, I didn't really know the rules of how things worked, but that culture shock was such a good gift. And so what I'll say is one, you're gonna have a lot of fun. Two, 
know that culture shock is a thing and you'll feel bad sometimes, but man, that is the door that, that culture shock is going to throw the doors open to experiences that you have no idea. were going to be amazing. Uh, and so, okay. yeah, enjoy it. Use that passport, slow down. Don't try to do too much. Cause I think sometimes the best parts of being in another culture outside of your own are just sitting on the street and, and uh, watching the street go by smelling the air and how it's different. Uh, and one of my big phrases is walk until your day becomes interesting. So um, give yourself permission when you leave your country to sort of walk around and slow down in a quotidian way and like go to the convenience store and see if it's Japan, you know, what, what kind of sweets do they sell there? How are they different? Does this one look weird? Yeah, I'll spend a couple of yen on this and, and buy it and eat it. And just realize that those differences uh, can be intimidating sometimes, but they're also a mystery to be solved. Uh, and they're part of the fun of going to another culture. So I envy you I, because my first time to another country was was uh, life-changing. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, in my case, my first time in another country was many, many moons ago. And uh, to be able to get back to that feeling of the, the newness of everything, that, again, sense of adventure and of, of exploration that happens when you've left your environment for the first time. And yes, the anxiety, because like you said, like it, it's you're not always going to feel good at all. But uh, I think when you decide you're going to lean into the fun of even that, the thrill uh, that's, uh, that's, a, that's wonderful advice, Rolf. Thank you so much. And I do believe that, uh, I hope that that's useful, uh, for you, Tsuyang. Robert Goheya asks, is there somewhere inside the U.S. that you wish people would take the time to visit? Is there someplace inside the U.S. that you wish more people would take the time to visit? I think I already know what <laughs> answer it's going to be. Well, Ernest knows that I love my home state. I love Kansas. It's, it, it, it never ranks super high on the top 10 lists of things to do in the United States. I often talk to Europeans who spent more time in Florida or California or New York than me. But it feels like going visiting Kansas would be another planet. There's actually a lot of places um, that are off the tourist trail. We, we, we give lip service to getting off the beaten path, but we're usually pretty close to the beaten path. So, yeah, I can preach Kansas. You can watch the Fly Brother episode where I where I hang out um, with Ernest and some other some of my friends and colleagues in Kansas. But even the metaphorical Kansas, that place that isn't where people normally go. I mean, in Thailand, you might go to Isan. You know, like that's the northeast. That's the agricultural northeastern part of Thailand where tourists don't go as much, and people take much more interest in you if you're not the hundredth tourist they've seen today, right? So I would say any place in the Great Plains. Uh, no, I'll, I'll give my little plug for Kansas. I love the place. Um, it's also a place that you can see as a mystery to be solved. It's like, okay, this town has 277 people in it. Let's see what they do for fun here. You know, that basically, if you take that curiosity to, to even a little windswept town on the Great Plains, it's a good place to visit it. But I've been, I've been to places in Inland Valley, California. I've been in upstate New York. I have been in the panhandle of Oklahoma and the panhandle of Idaho. And it's just cool to go to places that other people don't. Not to show off and, and to show how I'm you know, a more daring traveler, but to just go and think, this place is in no guidebooks and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see what this is all about. You know, And again, this isn't about the US, but my wife Kiki has Norwegian family and they took us around Norway to places that were special to them. It was like their Kansas in Norway. Mm -hmm. They were not guidebook places, but man, we had fun. 
We just had the greatest time hiking through the forest, staying in cabins, going to the local logging museum, going to the local like American hot car and, and rock and roll museum uh, in, in, in this part of Norway. It was great. Hot car and rock and roll museum. Yeah, no, they have all these. Uh, there's this uh, down in Sormson in Norway. If you're in that part of the country, they have a a car club with like 200 post World War II American cars that have been preserved, and they're they're building like a, a Happy Day style diner there. Uh, and it's 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 like seeing 50s Americana through Norwegian eyes. It's not the guidebook. It blew my mind. And so, in a way, I use Kansas as a metaphor to think: well, what parts of this place do people overlook, and how can I? embrace that part of the country. And so uh, find the Kansas of any corner of the place you're in, United States included. And gosh, it's it's a place that's not interesting, but it's a place where people are interested. Yeah. And I love the idea that, you know, the pe- people are showing you what they what they enjoy, you know, what they're proud of, what they want to show off. Uh, and that's that's a beautiful feeling, too, when people are passionate about the little, um, you know, egg that they <laughs> think is special. And you're just like, oh, that's uh, <laughs> like, even if it's nothing that, you know, grand or thrilling. I just really feel um, cared for uh, just by virtue of them showing me something that means a lot to them. So thank you for mentioning that. Uh, And also thank you for representing upstate New York, uh, the Adirondacks, one of my favorite places, of course, after Kansas. And both of them are on your season of Fly Brother, right? Season two. (laughs) Both are on the current season of Fly Brother. Season two. Thank you. Uh, so Emma Morrill asked, what advice do you have for people who have traveled a lot? How do we keep it magical? How do we not become complacent? How can we constantly evolve and, uh, and progress the way we travel? Great, great question. That's a great question. And actually, I'm going to say something, but Ernest, I'm curious to know your thoughts too, because you've, okay. you're a person who has been, had a travel centric life for a long time. I think one is just slowing down. One is Tied into the question I just have, find out where have I not gone? Where, where is the provinces here? Where can I go to a town where the tour, bu- tourist buses don't go? And another thing, too, is, is to come home. I, I think a lot of travelers love travel and they're exhausted, but they don't want to quit traveling because each day is special. And it's like, well, maybe coming home will not just allow you to take that attitude home, but it'll allow you to become a little bit thirsty for the travels that are yet yeah. to come. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it's just sort of sewing together the idea of home and the idea of travel in, in together that in such a way that you can't really tease them apart. You know, they have this phrase called digital nomads. In fact, probably a lot of the people listening right now are digital nomads. I, I talk with a lot of digital nomads, which is about taking your career to another part of the world, maybe a, a more interesting or warm or cheap part of the world and working remotely from the other side of the world. But I think there's also the inversion where you take those lessons that you live you've learned in distant places and bring them home. And suddenly you are a dynamic part of that home community. Mm. You get a thirst for travel. You talk about your own travels in such a way that you're a witness to the world. You know, if if there's an item in the news, I'm always talking about Syria because 20 years ago, I had a great experience there. And I saw the humanity of Syria in such a way that at home, I can be a witness to the wonderful Syrians of all stripes um, I met in Syria. In fact, some of the people I met in Syrian were were um, were Sudanese refugees. I heard some gospel music coming out of a church. I walked in, and it's like gospel music. This sounds like the U.S. And it's like they're Sudanese refugees, and they spoke multiple languages. They were travelers. We call them refugees, but they were yeah. travelers too. And I think 
it was so interesting to see the way that they had internalized unwilling travel. They were war refugees in a country that itself went into war later, but they they were living. Uh, it was a church, so they were living very spiritual lives, but very engaged lives, and mm-hmm. they were learning from their environments in in a, in a way that I found humbling. And so, yeah, just just find ways to continue to be humbled, um, find ways to slow down, find find ways to go places that you don't know your way around necessarily, but then come home, uh, take those lessons home, l- give back to home in the home community, and then let your experience of home make you thirsty for, for, for further horizons. Oh man, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Um, I, yes, I have traveled a lot as well. And at one point, I mean, I hit travel fatigue where it was just like, how many more amazing experiences can I have? Right. Because they were coming so fast and so often that they lost their meaning. They lost the, that specialness, that magic. It was just like, eh, you know, and that's not fair to the place. It's not fair to me. It's not fair to you or, or and 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 the folks that are waiting there and wanting you to have uh, a, a, an experience of presence. And uh, so I think absolutely going home and and uh, not doing as much uh, certainly helps. Uh, and then just remember traveling with intention. You know, just saying I plan to I am I'm going to have fun today. I am going to be present. I am going to leave my phone in the room uh, as I. I go out today and see what happens. Um, and I think that's probably a great strategy if you're returning to places that you've been to several times. I have an upcoming trip to New York. That's always an interesting place, but I would actually, I really am going to leave my phone in the room one of those days and just go out there. It's a great practice location for uh, untethering, right? Uh, and and also recognize I don't have to take every a picture of every single thing. So, you know, it, it's giving yourself the permission also to uh, to chill out, to not have to see everything, I think will allow those magic moments to organically show themselves. Uh, Rolf, our last question of the evening, um, how does one keep the wandering spirit alive when not traveling? Well, there's a lot of ways to do it, including watching uh, Fly Brother with uh, Ernest White II, joining his Fly Brother membership community and, 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 and having an initiative where we send you out on the road without uh, a phone. Yes. Um, but there's there's a lot of ways. I mean, and this is cool. Like for my birthday a year ago, my wife took me to eat Korean food in Junction City, Kansas, because she knows I love Korean food. After two years in Korea, Korea is my comfort food. And it was so fun to engage. We, we didn't go far. We didn't go to Korea. Someday I'll take her to Korea. We went to Junction City, Kansas, which is this military town. And the Korean food wasn't super authentic, but the portions were big because it was young soldiers who were eating it, right? And it was so interesting to see Korea through military-based eyes in Junction City, Kansas. And so one, food is a great way to keep that wanderlust, that thirst for travel alive. Basically, any immigrant community in your hometown is going to give you a window into their world, and they're going to be interested in 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 your interest in them, right? Um, so, um, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of mediated ways, including fly, uh, fly brother with Ernest White the second that we can experience other parts of the world. There's your Instagram feed. There's all sorts of inspirational things, but I think that in person stuff that it co- uh, go to a Pakistani cricket game, go to a Vietnamese restaurant, and taste the other side of the world for an afternoon, and that's a great way to whet that travel appetite and be happy in your home. To piggyback on that, music when you go to these. Mm. Re- 
asking them like, what's your favorite singer? What's a song, you know, what's a song or an album that you like? It's another great way, of course, film and television as well. There's a lot of wonderful media out there that can give you that um, vicarious travel experience. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>